Nobody grows up dreaming of being a critic is an oft-used quote that I think of as what I call a Joe Roganism. It's the type of thing that sounds clever when you say it at first or see it in a social media caption, but is actually thick as shit when you think about it for more than a second. It assumes that success is based upon achieving what the childhood version of yourself wanted. But here's the thing, kids are stupid. When I was a kid, some of the things I wanted to be included a dinosaur and a fire truck, not a fireman. I wanted to be the truck specifically. You wouldn't take career advice from a random eight-year-old. Eight-year-olds think that for Christmas, what happens is that a big fat man comes down their chimney, who's riding, by the way, a load of reindeer on his way there, comes down the chimney, delivers them a lot of Christmas presents. And their great Auntie Mary, who they see once a year, gives them a box of Lynx Africa, uh, a gift set for some reason, but their parents don't buy them gifts because they get gifts given to them by a big fat stranger. That's the kind of intelligence level we're talking about. So if that's the case, why do we assume that our childhood selves are so much smarter? I got to do my childhood dream. I got to become a pro wrestler. One of the things, I couldn't become a dinosaur, so I became a pro wrestler. What that child based the dream on was acting cool in front of thousands of baying fans. He didn't take into consideration the toxic workplace culture that surrounded it, for example, or the fact that it would leave his adult equivalent to a body dysmorphia thinking that having armpit hair made me a monster. Like I said, kids, stupid. The people who spout these critiques of critics usually, unsurprisingly, are the same people being criticised by them who then go on to see great value in them when the criticism is positive and leads to them making money. But the truth is, we kinda need critics. Maybe not the pretentious, suited, affluent archetype of years past. Maybe not even fully professional ones. Maybe we just need normal people like you and me to sharpen our own tastes and learn how to communicate things in a way that informs or validates others. Let me give you an example. How often have you hated a movie that everyone else liked or vice versa and felt wrong for doing so? The critic's job is to either put those feelings into words and make you feel seen, or at least give you a framework to understand what it is everyone else is seeing, so you can either understand your own feelings better by contrast, or maybe even reevaluate. One of my favourite experiences is hearing generally positive sentiment around a movie, but walking in knowing essentially nothing, then being absolutely blown away by the experience, leaving the cinema buzzing with my brain on fire, and possibly reframing how I see the entire world. And that's what the critic exists for and that's what I'm going to try to, for, to do for you starting now. My name is Jer Leggett though I appreciate some of you may know me by Rick in my previous Low Blows life and you're listening to the pilot episode of page 180. You're very welcome to this brand new venture of mine where I bring you your one-stop guide to in the style of my old favourite Airtel Teltext page, tell you what you need to know about what's on now and next. Every week I'm going to be dialing up some friends, some of whom you may have listened to in my previous work or some you may not and some new friends I may make along the way uh, to talk you through the latest movie releases and spoiler-free reviews. I'm going to have a no-holds-barred in-depth catch-ups about some of the TV shows that we're all watching, plus I also want to dabble into some sport from time to time and what's coming up in that world. But I don't want this to be a one-man show, and aside from today, it won't just be my voice that you hear. 
As well as chatting with friends about the big movies, TV releases and sports events, I want to hear from you too and have this be more of a back and forth conversation. So we have a social media page. It's at 180pod. We have multiple actually on Twitter, on Instagram and God help me, at 35 years of age, I'm going to try start a TikTok, though you will not see me doing choreographed dances. Famous last words, I know. Um, what I'd like to do is, I'd like to have you get involved. Like, just interact with the social media pages so we can read out your comments as time goes on. Give us reviews of movies or TV shows you're seeing or predictions for sports events. Or even what I'd like to do is, I'd like to have your voice heard on this show. Go on to Instagram, drop me a DM. Not weird, please. Um, but drop me a DM and send me a review if you've seen a movie. And we could ha- you could have your voice featured on this podcast as well. So it's more of a conversation. To get us started today, though, on the pilot episode, I'm going to answer probably what is the most immediate question on all of your lips. Who are you, and why are you the guy that should help us figure out how we feel about these movies and shows? Well, let me tell you some information. Let me just give you my origin story when it comes to movies and TV. My favourite movie is one that I saw at around the age of 10 years old, and I definitely shouldn't have been allowed to watch it. It's Pulp Fiction. I can annoyingly quote almost every line and recite Samuel L. Jackson's Ezekiel 2517 speech on command. I, I won't do it now, but rest assured, for those who don't know, I am actually an incredible impersonator, and the world has just yet to realise this and give me credit for my talent. Sometimes people who know me will say that I'm doing bad impressions out of sheer jealousy, but we try and get past that. But rest assured, I can do it, and if I wanted to, I would do it right now. I'm just not going to. My first full-time job was working in a cinema, and in that role, a monster was created. Whereas beforehand, I may have been scared to go to the cinema alone, that stint normalised it for me, and since then, any time I have two to three hours spare, you'll often find me in a theatre somewhere in Dublin City watching the latest releases. I absolutely hate movie snobbery, and this is what I think makes me best suited to do this in this day and age. Even if I'm watching a movie that I don't enjoy, I actually enjoy the process of not enjoying it and thinking about why I don't. While I absolutely love finding hidden gems and then putting everyone else wide to them, I'll also never rule a movie out just because it's a popular, expensive blockbuster and because that's the trendy thing to say. On the flip side of that, I also can't stand when average movies get instant rave reviews that won't hold up after time just because that's the cool thing to say. Wakanda Forever is one that comes to mind, and we'll probably discuss this as we go on. Even if you said you loved it, you're not still thinking about it regularly anymore just a few weeks later in the same way you do when you watch an actual great movie, do you? Do you? You're not still thinking about it. It's not as good as you thought it was, and that's okay. I used to be a DJ and my previous experience there saw me be able to kind of take a mental note of people's music tastes and be good at then recommending them other things that they may like based on that. And I work very similarly with movies or TV. I'm kind of that guy like with my family or with my friends who can kind of pick a recommendation based on something else that I've watched and and kind of giving it to them especially for their taste. I have a pretty good hit rate in kind of matching shows and movies to people. Genre-wise, I I don't really have any preferences. I'll always have time for the likes of psychological horrors, particularly ones based in reality and not just jump scares, so The Shining or The Babadook will be right up my alley. I'm a massive nerd too, and you're going to really get that over the next few weeks. Uh, So hook anything to do with the likes of Star Wars, Marvel, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, etc. into my veins. Um, But I also love international cinema and finding hidden gems from far afield. Uh, City of God is a legacy example. 
example, it gets constantly rewatched in my home. I love going out to the Lighthouse Cinema. I love seeing a super weird movie there that challenges me and takes me totally out of my comfort zone and leaves me thinking about it for days, even if I'm technically traumatised by the experience. But then again, I also love simple comfort movies that give me warm, fuzzy feelings. And if you want an example, Inside Out is on my top 10 all-time list. So yeah... I've got a pretty wide taste palette and I don't have biases one way or another. So I think that gives me a good perspective to be able to host a show like this and advise people of what I'm into. TV-wise, I'm a child who grew up watching Lost and obsessing over it. So naturally, what I love are podcast-friendly shows that you can get really stuck into and make a week-long experience between watching, researching, coming up with your theories, what we all did when Game of Thrones was on. So to give you a taste of my TV experience, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you my top 10 TV shows of 2022 and why. So you can just get a feel for what I'm interested in. 10. She-Hulk. Jessica Gao's superhero legal comedy currently has a lackluster 5.2 rating on IMDb, which is something that the show itself predicted in taking aim at toxic male nerd culture as the villain of this hilarious romp that will hopefully begin the process of Tatiana Maslany's world domination. This ranks just underneath WandaVision for me as the bar for Marvel Studios TV, and the final episode's fourth wall sledgehammering twist remains one of my favourite TV watching experiences of 2022. 9. Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. The best thing that could have happened for this show was how upset it made the real-life counterparts to the fictionalised here, like Jerry West, almost giving the show's fantastical creative license leaps credence by how much they upset those who lived them. It's deliciously addictive viewing, making full use of HBO's budget to give us an almost weekly cinematic experience where no two episodes felt the same, and it had me rushing to my phone afterwards to discover some of the most insane elements of the show were the aspects of the show that weren't actually fictionalised. I cannot wait for season 2. 8. The Rings of Power Patrick McKay and John D. Payne's attempt to flesh out J.R.R. Tolkien's legendary Lord of the Rings indices while also navigating the series' complex legal rights about what Amazon can and can't adapt isn't for everyone. It has to be nerdy enough to be credible for hardcore book readers, potentially alienating casual viewers with its attention to detail, yet it also has to make a coherent narrative out of thousands of years worth of lore, and it must be rootless in condensing and rewriting Tolkien's history to do so, which then serves to alienate many hardcores. This one also runs the risk of making it not worth the bajillions that Amazon invested hoping to make it into the next Game of Thrones. So yeah, it's not for everyone, but one thing it is, is for me. It's an immersive experience that needs to be watched in Ultra HD on the biggest screen possible. It was an absolute joy for me to feel like I was in Middle Earth Weekly, and the Lost fan of me loved the attention to detail that led to weekly theorising without going full Westworld either and getting lost in itself by keeping the story relatively simple instead of trying to play cat and mouse with its audience. Will it succeed in being the next Game of Thrones and being a universal event for TV lovers? Probably not. Will I continue to love it and relish being able to discuss every detail with a few friends of mine who also adore it? I'm sure of it. 7. Peacemaker Although it felt like James Gunn's Suicide Squad spin-off vehicle for John Cena was more of a cult easter egg to a movie that got mixed reviews, I feel that in time, this show will get the love it deserves and potentially be seen with an almost iron level level of importance to the DCEU given that it was the first signal that James Gunn was about to take over. From its iconic Wigwam theme song and opening credits. Do you really wanna, do you really wanna taste it? 
This show gripped anyone who gave it a try with an open mind. Cena was an absolute revelation in this, getting to flex not only his muscles, but his full acting range, as both he and Gunn succeed in the difficult task of making a character that the original movie appeared to render irredeemable, both likeable enough to follow for a full series, while also not portraying his character choices. Unlike Rings of Power, I feel that this is one that's going to take over the world upon its return, especially if it's able to keep the benchmark that it laid down as high as it was, especially now that we know that Gunn is adopting a Kevin Feige role in the DCEU, and this is his passion project. 6. Stranger Things Series 4 our return to the Inside Out is both an evolution and step down from Magnificent Season 3, in which I felt Stranger Things fully clicked. What the Duffer Brothers realised in that series was that, while we do adore the nostalgic feels and mythical plot, what we love most was spending time with these magnificently cast characters and enjoying the chemistry that they shared together. The real feeling of friendship that so many similar projects to this miss, and the moments of levity that break everything up. Season 4 sees the same characters return, years later in real life but not in plot and awkwardly taller and ganglier as a result. It feels off, but part of that is also that the budget has been clearly multiplied, while the frankly farcical episode running times mean that we were given 9 epic movies masquerading as the wonderful throwback TV show that we fell in love with. This jarred, and it, to be honest, it felt for a while like they wouldn't make it work. There are things I felt like they missed, such as scaling back on the levity in favour of stakes so high that they're barely visible to the naked eye. But in the end, you just have to succumb to the Duffer Brothers masterpiece, and then they get you where you need to be. I don't know how they're going to match the high expectations they're setting in the final series, but I also don't doubt their ability to do so either. Five. The Boys Season 3 Unlike Stranger Things, the boys know that we're here for the hits and waste no time in giving it to us. From our visit inside of someone's penis in episode 1, to the absolute insanity of Herogasm, Eric Kripke is absolutely masterful in blending the can they actually do that on television craziness with a truly gripping storyline that manages to keep the train on the track still by being so faithful to its core characters and their motivation. Anthony Starr's Homelander continues his ascendancy to becoming one of the all-time great TV villains. Billy Butcher and Huey Campbell are forced to wrestle with their own toxicity, while Aaron Moriarty's Starlight perfectly watched the type road of being the show's moral centre without becoming annoying or condescending. The Boys is the kind of show so ambitious in its goals that you feel it absolutely has to fall off the cliff at some stage, and yet it just keeps getting better and better. 4. House of the Dragon How do you recover when one of the biggest intellectual properties in history falters so publicly at the exact moment the entire planning is paying the most amount of attention to it at the same time? It didn't seem possible, but somehow, Ryan J. Condal and Miguel Sabochnik managed to make us all fall in love with George R. R. Martin's Westerosi epic with their Targaryen-focused prequel. The second Tyrion Lannister declared Bran as the most fitting king with no build-up, it felt like the days of Game of Thrones bringing the world together around one big water cooler had instantly become a memory. And yet there I was, in the lighthouse cinema for a packed and exciting screening of the finale of House of the Dragon. Part of that is down to its incredible cast. Matt Smith, Paddy Constantine and Millie Alcock for me were the standouts. But also part of it is Condal and Sabochnik's ability to get back to basics of what we love about Thrones. That palace drama, the plotting and scheming, the great conversations in big rooms culminating in fantastical, genuinely stunning resolutions. 
What solidified this to me was my absolute horror at realizing at first that they'd repurposed the iconic Game of Thrones theme song in episode 2, fearing that the show was going to be afraid to create its own identity, to happily then singing along with it again by the end of episode 10, because I knew that not only was Game of Thrones back, it was back to being the show that we all loved again. 3. Andor in a similar vein, Tony Gilroy managed to reinvigorate an old IP that had taken licks. Star Wars wasn't in any trouble per se, given that The Mandalorian and that everything happening in the Filoni-verse still kept the fanbase invigorated, but the brand had lost its guarantee equality with projects like The Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi, providing definite highlights, but also an overarching sense of a franchise being milked and now inconsistent. Gilroy re-energized Star Wars by giving us a series set in the universe that is also determined not to be a Star Wars show. Andor goes its own way and merely uses what we know and love as a backdrop for what is essentially a Tony Gilroy story set in the universe rather than a Star Wars show written by Gilroy. The end result is the most fresh content we've got in Star Wars since The Last Jedi, but one that unlike The Last Jedi only strengthens and unites the fanbase rather than divide it. The use of short arcs building to a full season allows every episode to feel urgent and pivotal, with one way out in particular for me being up there with Empire as some of the greatest Star Wars content ever made. An absolute revelation from a show we expected to get lost in the shuffle in airing at the same time as the Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings based properties, but ended up outshining them both. 2. Better Called Saul Season 6 Speaking of shows that went their own way and then ended up being better than they frankly had any right to be, Peter Gold and Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad prequel signed off on six seasons of nearly flawless television on its own terms, and the end results were spectacular. The debate of is it better than Breaking Bad was one that my opinion evolved on throughout. For the most period of time I settled that it's at the same level and that's incredible but in the ending of this show the discussion became almost moot for me. This ending caused this to surpass the original masterpiece for my money. People often praise Breaking Bad's ending as perfect but to be honest that never really settled for me. After the near-perfect Ozymandias episode, the show kind of gave way to fan service and became more of a fun action movie rather than a character study of a man's descent into evil that the rest of the series had been beforehand. Better Call Saul went the opposite way. It wasn't trying to be what the fans wanted it to be and instead was exactly what the creators knew that it had to be and was so much better for that. While you could see why in this culture they were nervous about putting out late series episodes with Saul just running basic cons in the mall instead of answering questions like will Kim die, they had the balls to take a swing and we thanked them for it. Without spoiling anything, the realistic but thrilling climax made us feel foolish for spending years wondering if Kim would meet a grizzly end or whether her and Jimmy would find each other and go hand in hand into the sunset. The story showed us that these were just the wrong questions to ask and instead we should have just been sitting back and enjoying a world class TV making machine creating at their highest capacity. With that said though, it was only the second best TV show of the year. And in at number one... Tamaraka. Excellent choice. Should have gone for the castanets. I choose Defiant Jazz. Though this experience is in Heli's honor, I urge all the refiners to take advantage of the opportunity presented. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Severance. The truth is, for me, you could put the top five shows in any order and I'm going to be happy. But if you listen to the reasoning behind my choices, you'll notice there are a few recurrent things and I think they'll kind of tell you about who you're listening to and what my tastes are like. First off, aside from three shows, all of the top ten are new shows in their first series. Yet, the one that was a final season and stuck the landing was my number two show of the year. House of the Dragon, Andor and the boys scored points for being able to either reinvigorate or keep up the high expectations we have of their respective franchises. But Stranger Things and Rings of Power, despite both delivering cinema level standard episodes, were docked points for not being able to do so. What does that tell us then, at least about my own tastes? For me, stories are at their best when they're capturing your imagination. Once captured, it then becomes difficult even for skilled creators with access to giant financing to be able to maintain the heady expectations that they themselves set. And so, we arrive at my number one pick, Severance, as my favourite show of the year. The one that captured my imagination more than any other and gave me the same level of expectations as so many other shows that I discussed. With the likes of this, Blackbird, Slow Horses, Pachinko, Mythic Quest and The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, 2022 was perhaps the year of Apple TV+, Plus, upsetting the, for lack of a better term, Apple cart, by coming from underdog status to heavyweight in the streaming wars, and there's no more fitting way to round off this list than with their magnum opus. This workplace drama takes a simple concept. What if you could completely separate work and home life and then spins it into a lost level mystery thriller that sticks with you all week until the next episode, then leaves you astounded without actually giving you much, if any, information on what the hell is actually happening. It provided Adam Scott with a dramatic platform that will take him from familiar friendly face of Hollywood to one of the elite actors of today, while also breathing life into the career of the likes of Patricia Arquette and Christopher Walking, expertly utilising A-list that guy from that things like John Turturro and Zach Cherry, and also creating new stars in the likes of Brit Lover and Tramiel Tillman. An out of nowhere instant classic that will dominate workplace conversation and ensure we all have to keep our Apple TV Plus subscriptions active. Hopefully with that, you'll have an idea of what I like TV-wise. And as the weeks go on, we're going to discuss the big shows in depth in our Into the Spoilerverse segment each week, where myself and a friend who's passionate about the subject will chat in depth about the the latest happenings. Our first up is going to be your new favourite TV show and what has been my pick for the next Game of Thrones since it was announced, The Last of Us, an adaptation of my favourite video game of all time, which kicks off on Sky from Monday the 16th of January. Do not miss it and make sure you check back here after you've watched to dissect it each week. As I said before, we're also going to cover sports as the weeks go on. In particular, I've got my annual Super Bowl preview on the horizon as well as some Six Nations chat and more as it arises. And yes, for listeners of Low Blow, I can reveal we may have some uh, pro wrestling content in there. It's not going to be a pro wrestling show, so don't worry if you're someone who hasn't listened to my content before, uh, but we will throw in some uh, for people who are looking for that. And... While we, have a re- while we will have a ro- regular rotation of guests joining as we go on, today, like I said, it's just getting to know me and my taste in the hope that I can give you some recommendations for content that you'll fall in love with while also assuring you that I'll be able to be the person to give you that in future. So, to round it off as I spoke of earlier, I'm a movie obsessive. This year alone, I've watched exactly 100 new release movies. And while I've been putting reviews on my social media, you can find me, by the way, if you haven't already, on at jer underscore 
Leggett on Twitter and at Jer Leggett on Instagram, two G's, two T's. I've never actually tipped my cap to which movies I preferred over any others. I have been keeping a list though. So what better way to show you my interests and give you some recommendations all in one for what to watch than to rank them from 100 to 1 with mini reviews. So without further ado, guys, it's the 180-100 of 2022. For the entirety of the movie, I was begging to see if it would be able to justify itself. Could it knowingly wink to the camera in a way that made it a so bad it's good movie? Did it have an amazing immersive special effects section a la Gravity when it gets to business time? Or did it have an Armageddon style plot twist? Then one of the characters yelled, Sonny, the moon will help us. And I was like, nah. I'm out. <laughs> this was comfortably the worst movie of the year. It's an awful premise, characters who just instinctively who knew the answers to every single question that arose, and every single line made me want to pause the movie to ask 15 different questions. My favourite part was where they had the absolute balls to try and set up a sequel at the end. I somehow doubt that we'll be seeing Moonfall 2 in our futures, but if they were self-aware enough to embrace the shitness of it all and call it Toonfall, I could have actually been into it. 19 Halloween ends. Good. Please let it. What started as a decent reboot in the first of this unnecessary trilogy ends with a whimper in a Halloween movie that somehow decides the best way to spend the final chapter is to attempt to move the attention away from Michael Myers. This was all nonsense. 98. Morbius. I didn't expect or even want this movie to be good. All I asked for from the best version of this movie that was ever going to be was that it would be laughably bad or at least good for memes. And it didn't even hit that low bar. This was an absolute non-event. Where I wanted Batman and Robin, they gave me Days of Future Past. They had Jared Leto and didn't even let him do a funny voice. While when you look at how Matt Smith basically resurrected a dead giant franchise in Game of Thrones single-handedly, it's actually impressive how much they squandered his potential here. 97. DC League of Super Pets. A frankly bad movie filled with recycled jokes and sequences we've seen done much more effectively in other movies. However, a bunch of multi-millionaires got paid more for mediocre work in the midst of a global financial cost of living crisis. So look, there's that. 96. Parallel Mothers. I feel like I live in a parallel universe to the critics who say that this is one of the movies of the year. Penelope Cruz is the one bright spark in this telenovela-style story of two mothers who give birth on the same day. Things happen with no rhyme or reason, just because the plot needs them to, rather than actually naturally progressing. For example, at one stage Cruz just shows up at a cafe, orders coffee, bumps into her parallel mother, they chat for a minute, then Cruz leaves because they've discussed the thing that's relevant to the plot, but never drinks her coffee! One of the most honest to god annoying movies of the year, and this is just one example, only made more so because everyone else seems to see something that I don't. 95. The Grey Man. You can essentially give the same review for every Netflix vanity project movie this year. It's famous people doing their next one for the money while spending Netflix pandemic profits in a glossy, excessively expensive movie that's perfectly watchable but you'll forget as soon as the credits roll. 
Do you remember Chris Evans' weird little moustache? No, I didn't either. And we should be talking about that a lot. It's a really weird moustache. 94. Men. Alex Garland's horror about a woman who finds herself pursued by men during a solo holiday thinks it's much cleverer than it is. It plays like a drunken idea everyone thought at the time was genius and they just went straight into production without ever asking, are we sure this is actually any good? What's most frustrating is that, like the best drunken ideas, there probably is a germ of a potential great idea in there which only serves to make the movie a more frustrating watch when they squander it. 93. Mr. Harrigan's Phone this is the kind of movie your auntie who's read one book in her life, which is Fifty Shades of Grey by the way, but starts a book club, tells you is her favourite ever. Because it's better than the one other book that she'd read. But in reality, it's boring, preachy, and tells you instead of showing you absolutely every bit of the plot. There's a lot of capital A acting here, but not enough stub substance for any of it to actually matter. 92. My Best Friend's Exorcism on paper, this is a satire of 1980s high school exorcist movies, and it sounds like it could be good crack. Until you actually try and think of any 1980s high school exorcism movies that it could actually be satirizing. I'll wait. This goes about as well as a movie trying to make fun of a genre that never actually happened might, to the point that it gets so ridiculous that it becomes then funny, so in a strange roundabout way, it almost falls arse backwards into working. Note the word, almost. 91. Blonde. This is kind of like a bloke telling everyone he's a feminist while reading a zoo magazine, or more literally, while being inside of Marilyn Monroe's vagina. Because that's where we travel. <laughs> Several times in Andrew Dominic's adaptation of the wild fictional biography that plays so loose with the truth of Marilyn Monroe's life, it comes across as melodramatic, desperate, and borderline illegal at times. This is about as likely to win an Oscar as an episode of Jeremy Kyle because, like the latter, it's only interesting because of how much of a hot mess that it actually is. 90. Violent Night David Harbour plays a jaded, alcoholic Santa gone rogue who tries to find the meaning of Christmas by stopping a robbery. The thing is, that's a decent pitch for a fun movie. Is it going to be Die Hard? Is it going to be Home Alone? Is it going to be a screwball comedy that goes for it? Or is it going to follow the path of nobody and committing to being a great action movie that has no right to be great? It tries to do all four in truth, with some heavy copyright infringement along the way. And as a result, it actually succeeds in doing none of them. If you had some Christmas fun watching this, more power to you. I didn't. 89. Uncharted. A disappointing adaptation of an excellent Naughty Dog game that, with The Last of Us on the horizon, makes me nervous remembering. Tom Holland is a sneakily great Nathan Drake, but Mark Wahlberg's inconceivable take on Sully undermines all of it. The highs are high at times, and this could have been a decent blockbuster had it not been attached to the Uncharted franchise and given us expectations that come with that. But anyone who actually knows the source material can only sit there and think, why did you try to do an Oceans movie when Indiana Jones is right there? 88. Troll. It's difficult for the fantasy fan of me not to be disappointed by Netflix's Norwegian movie about mythical mountain trolls awakening. There's so much space here for a wonderful lore to be explored and the early portions of the movie seem to suggest that it's awaiting us and they're eager to do so. Unfortunately, it ends up just evolving into an expensive Godzilla movie with cheesy action cliches and dumb character choices. An absolutely massive waste of what could have been a really good movie. 87. The Tragedy of Macbeth 
This ambitious attempt to modernise and sex up Shakespeare was visually arresting and well acted. What it wasn't though, was entertaining, engaging or challenging on anything beyond the surface level. 86. See how they run. Saoirse Ronan's whodunit comedy has a couple of laughs but isn't as clever or as funny as it thinks. Rewatch one of the Wes Anderson movies that this so desperately wants to be instead. 85. Lingui, the sacred bonds. A Muslim woman in Chad learns that her 16 year old daughter is pregnant. And frankly, it's all a bit boring. A movie that exists to explore backwards cultural attitudes, mystifyingly decides to adopt a tell don't show approach and gives us random dance sequences where we learn nothing instead. 84. Studio 666. The Foo Fighters comedy horror obviously hits a lot different since the passing of Taylor Hawkins. It's big dumb fun that if anything could have been even bigger and dumber. And because of that it's more likely just a fun couple of hours than a movie that will actually grow a cult following and second wind over time. Don't go out of your way to see this but if you like the lads you'll probably get a few laughs. 83. Benedetta. Done with this sort of thing. Careful now. That pretty much covers the plot of this movie. Basically, Paul Beerhoven, the mastermind behind Showgirls, went out and made his own The Passion of St. Tibulus. It's a slightly awkward cinema experience for me that was just myself and one other random girl sitting in the back row of the lighthouse for this, and I don't think either of us realised going in we were essentially going to watch nuns do porn. Sister sex act, if you will. I'm making jokes because there's nothing more really to this. It's two nuns riding a lot. 82. Nightmare Alley. Guillermo del Toro's noir carny crusade doesn't lack of style and you can't say that it's not interesting, but it feels like the prestige without, well, prestige, as there's very little substance and you should probably just re-watch that instead. 81. The greatest beer run ever. Zac Efron tries to deliver his neighbours fighting a Vietnam beer in a fine popcorn movie based on a genuinely wild true story. It's a perfectly fine way to spend two hours, but doesn't say or show anything new about Vietnam. 80. Don't worry, darling. A bit of a shit version of Severance, unfortunately, completely swallowed up by the behind-the-scenes drama and promotion, which many say is unfair, but I say was frankly more interesting. Harry Styles is horribly miscast as an actual grown adult who has a wife in a plush but relatively empty fair, only held together by Florence Pugh's predictably excellent performance. 79. Ambulance. Michael Bay movies by default begin by ticking both the big and dumb boxes automatically. The question then becomes, is it fun though? And the answer to this is, yeah, sure, kinda, at times. But also it just feels like a really expensive setup for a future CinemaSins video. 78. The Tinder Swindler. It's hard not to watch this Netflix documentary and think that this dope went to way more effort than he should have needed to, to get the ride. It's a con for the sake of a con and done in such an outlandish fashion that it makes it a bit difficult to sympathise with his victims. But still, these mental Netflix documentaries are easy leave your brain at the door watches that have a high floor so it's worth a watch if you haven't already somehow. 77. Spirited. How fun does a Christmas comedy starring Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell sound? This is that on paper, but it's about 40% as fun as he imagined. The reason is that this is sneakily also a semi-dramatic, sentimental musical that ends up feeling like a ridiculously expensive Christmas-themed two-hour-long Super Bowl ad. 76. Spiderhead. The most prototypical 2022 Netflix movie. Flashy, a big star attached in Chris Hemsworth, an interesting concept, a trailer that promises more than it delivers, mainly because they can't sustain that good concept for their full movie to bring true to a dramatic conclusion. It's a perfectly fine, nothing else is on watch, but absolutely nothing more. 75. Where the Crawdads Sing. 
This is lightweight fare, not worth wasting any excess energy to see, but perfectly fine if you're at a loss or the type of movie that may surprise you if you find it on a flight or tune into it on a Saturday night. Any expectations, however, will be met with disappointment. 74. Chippendale Rescue Rangers this is the 2022 remix of Space Jam 2 and that it's a massive IP dump except explicitly based around Disney's vast obscure 90s throwback IP that it may be field testing what is ripe for a Disney Plus reboot that ends up way more fun than it has any right to be. Not one that you're constantly going to go back to but it is a fun Sunday morning trip down memory lane especially if you have kids and you want to get them into something that you would have watched as a kid yourself. 73. She Will Catherine Colbert's debut is a horror about an actress dealing with physical and mental scars on a retreat. It's promising if not perfect as it manages to be brave, confident, interesting, well told and both look and sound amazing without being fully engaging somehow. This may not be Colbert's masterpiece but it is a decent start from someone you can see getting there very very soon. 72. Fantastic Beasts The Secret of Dumbledore J.K. Rowling continues to make it easy for her critics to argue that she's out of touch and Warner Brothers should exhaust all legal or moral options to pry the wizarding world's creative control from her cold, bigoted hands. This was such a disappointment when you consider that the original Fantastic Beasts was one of the best movies released within that world. It's better than The Crimes of Grindelwald, but only because that movie swung and actually tried something new, even if it failed. The Secrets of Dumbledore just reminds me of a slightly better version of The Last Skywalker and that it was so desperate to tick certain boxes while also placating the fanbase that it ended up just becoming a big pile of nothing. And the fact that it may have killed the wizarding world as a result is testament to that. 71, this is going to upset people, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. I just didn't see what a lot of other people did in this movie and I feel time is going to vindicate me on this. Since they announced the details about the movie, I was sceptical earlier of their attempts to kill T'Challa off off screen and make it a Fast and Furious style tribute to Chadwick Boseman. The movie is about grief and its experience reminded me a lot of experiencing grief. It was at times beautiful, poignant, it was at times messy, it was at times understandably all over the place. But grief generally should be private and this grieving session cost millions was displayed in front of the entire planet and also had to fit into the overall MCU machine. As a tribute to Chadwick, when it hit those marks, it was beautiful, but as a coherent movie, it was all over the place and a miss for me. 70. Vortex I wish Gaspar Noe's take on dementia resonated with me more than it did. It was authentic, excellently acted and the split screen element is a really creative way to tackle the subject. But it was also so cold and clinical with characters that for the most part, while I could have dealt with them being flawed, came across as just unsympathetic despite what they were going through. That it created a disconnected affair that got lost in its own potential and concept. 69. Moon Age Daydream this documentary is likely porn for a David Bowie obsessive, as he can sit back, take in classic live performances and a presentation that seems undeniably Bowie in its design and scope, with quotes from the man himself driving the narrative instead of traditional talking heads. I enjoy Bowie's music, but I'm not a super fan, so it, spelled, it felt a bit like hanging out at someone else's party where I didn't know anyone for me. I enjoy my complicated genius narratives by seeing them getting challenged. But this is for fans by fans, literally telling the story in his own words. It's really well made. If you had this in your top 10 because you're a David Bowie fan, I'd understand it. But this one is just not my cup of tea. 68. Werewolf by Night 
Marvel's latest attempt at horror is a lot of things. It's ambitious, gorgeous, a fateful throwback, but what it isn't is the same thing that the rest of their horrors aren't. Scary. And that underscores an issue that Marvel needs to address and that it's pouring money and talent into these projects but then asking them to flex to the Marvel style when in reality if horror is on the Marvel agenda they really need to flex their formula to suit that. 67. Emancipation a horrific cat and mouse tale that feels like a box ticking Oscar bait exercise, ironically released just in time for the reigning best actor Will Smith to miss his first Oscars. For what it's worth, had he not slapped Chris Rock? I think he'd have still not needed to show up, as while this is well made and performed, it come across as, to me as similar to The Revenant in that it's more about an actor absolutely killing himself for the purpose of awards than actually telling an engaging story. 66. Compartment number 6. Two opposites meet on a train in a story that's either about what we think matters versus what actually does, or how Russians aren't as bad as they seem at first, which is just awkwardly timed if so. It got a lot of critical acclaim, and there is substance there, it's just not very entertaining. It's like an average sun holiday in that it has its moments and you're not worse off because of it, but it also leaves no impact whatsoever on your life, and a few years later, you'll probably just forget you've even seen it. 65. The Wonder an English nurse must watch over a post-famine Irish child who can reportedly live without food. The film's meta-preamble adds an unnecessary air of sanctimony at the start where it declares that it is a movie and they're telling a story but the characters believe what they're going through. But Florence Pugh continues to never miss as she leads an excellent case of carrying this from having your curiosity to having your attention. 64. Black Adam while it's very funny to watch The Rock get dumped by DC and James Gunn and acting like it was always part of the plan, the truth is that if you watch Black Adam with an open mind, you'll know that's, that's probably a little harsh. This isn't exactly good per se, but there's a lot of positives too. I thought Johnson played the part well and I thought Pierce Brosnan in particular was a massive highlight. I thought at the time that the ending and some of the elements it touched upon set up an intriguing roadmap for the DCEU too, but it turns out it was just a road to nowhere. Oh well. 63. Glass Onion and Knives Out Story. The original Knives Out is one of my most rewatched movies of the last five years, so this sequel came with some high expectations. And look, there are some core elements of this that were always going to work. Rian Johnson knows how to tell the stories with a charismatic swagger, and Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc is one of the best original characters of the last decade for me. But this was given the Netflix treatment, so it was guilty of sins like exploding everything just because the budget was there to do so, where the original instead needed to think the plot through. This would be fine if it was an episode of the Benoit Blanc TV series, but as a much anticipated follow up to Knives Out, expected to carry the same grandeur, it falls way short. 62. The Woman King. If you're gonna do wish fulfillment cinema, you really need to go full end of inglorious bastards, or ultimately it's just a motive but forgettable mush that plays on sentiment but doesn't stick with you. For me, unless you're willing to go to that next level, harsh reality will always hit harder. That isn't to say that Viola Davis kicking slave or arse isn't a good watch, it's a perfectly entertaining movie with some decent action, and Davis in particular goes to lens I certainly didn't think she had in her. It's just a type of movie you'll never speak of or think of again. 61. She said. The story of how the New York Times released the story that took Harvey Weinstein down was one that I was ready to hate. Not because I've got anything against the Me Too movement, I was a supporter of it and followed it keenly. 
It's that movies and TV shows about recent history like this, with such serious subject matter, tend to have to pay too much respect to the victims whose wounds are still very, very real, to the point that it can dilute the actual integrity and effectiveness of the story. And the fact that one such victim plays themselves in it underscores this notion. And look, yeah, that kinda is the problem here and takes away from it a little bit. Movies about journalism can always feel very staged and samey. They're about taking phone calls, having conversations, writing on computers, all boring stuff on tape. So quite often scenes are deliberately set up to make these perfunctory tasks seem exciting. And yeah, that is also an issue. But in spite of these pratfalls, the source material is so compelling and the cast is so bought into this that it still, it still somehow is a good watch. If it gets nominated for awards, it'll be bad faith navel-gazing. There are much, much more deserving movies, but it is a decent watch that's worth your time. 60. Avatar Way of the Water do you remember the speed episode of Father Ted where they spent hours meeting and discussing plans before eventually cutting to a blackboard that said, we put the brick on the accelerator? That's how I imagine the plot for Avatar Way of the Water being mapped out with the end result of 12 years of planning being, we do the first movie again, but with water. So, sub in basically how you felt about the original and it probably still applies. For me, this is more like an episode of Planet Earth than a classic movie, simply because the landscape and visual experience is phenomenal and you just want to spend time in Pandora. Cameron understands this and lets you for mainly the second third of the movie. But then, like with Planet Earth, there comes a time where the lion has to kill a gazelle. You watch and you're gripped by this on the surface level and think, oh that's so sad when it happens, but you're also not in any way emotionally invested in a gazelle, so you're just watching a bunch of sad, beautiful or wonderful things happening on a beautiful canvas. 59. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. This is a wild comedy horror from A24 starring Pete Davidson that attempts to be this year's equivalent to Zola. The highs are really high and the movie definitely functions better when it leans into its comedic roots and away from any serious attempt at horror. Overall a really fun watchable 90 minutes that was maybe one more draft away from being a great movie. 58. True Things Ruth Wilson goes down the rabbit hole of settling for less at every juncture in an uncomfortably realistic take on loneliness and dating. To use a metaphor from the movie, it's like getting the urge to jump off a building. Not fun, but also weirdly life-affirming. Anyone who's experienced the sheer void of trying to find a connection in the cesspool of dating while struggling with your own place in the world, this movie will make you feel seen. 57. Brian and Charles the movie adaptation of Jim Archer's 2017 short about eccentric inventor Brian, played by David Earle, and his robot invention Charles, aka British Baymax, which is voiced expertly by Chris Hayward. It's a fun British little comedy. It starts owing Ricky Gervais royalties for its attempt at cringy mockumentary humour that's perhaps a bit played out at this stage, but once Charles shows up, it's impossible not to giggle and let it into your soul. 56. Ultrasound Rob Schroeder attempts to combine Memento, Shutter Island, Christopher Nolan and David Cronenberg in a psychological mystery thriller about the power of suggestion. If that sounds too ambitious, it's because it probably is. On one hand, it's, re it's a really interesting thinker with some questions that will linger with you for a few weeks, but on the other, it probably tries a bit too much and explains too little to live up to the heavy benchmark that it's reaching for. 55. Lightyear. This, importantly, is not a Toy Story movie. If you can understand and accept that and adjust your expectations accordingly, it can be quite enjoyable. What I admire most about it is that it doesn't try to be beyond itself or feel cheap, forced or exploitative like a cash grab off otherwise successful IP. Chris Evans was great and there are some genuine belly laughs in there and I'd be happy to watch a sequel of this. 54. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness 
an offensive at times absolute betrayal for me of what was Marvel Studios' best TV show so far in WandaVision. Sam Raimi is responsible for that by his own admission only scanning through some of that series, but is also responsible for many of the film's positive as there are high points such as the musical notes battle that has his fingerprints all over them. Michael Waldron's script severely lacks imagination and was deservedly shown up as not even the best multiverse movie in cinemas during that period, but there are some good points to watch out for in this movie that's maybe a bit more triggering at first because of the expectations you had when walking in, but then ends up being better on a rewatch. 53 Fresh Promising Young Woman was my favourite movie of 2021. Fresh is essentially that if it tried to make you puke or Promising Young Woman made you think. That's what makes it more of an entertaining, this is usually the point where I'd say popcorn watch, but don't eat anything watching this, trust me. Though if Pam and Tommy didn't forever ruin your image of Bucky Barnes, this movie is here to finish the job. 52 The Adam Project The Ryan Reynolds movie watching experience in 2022 was thinking to yourself, I mean... Yeah, it's not great, but it's still two hours of Ryan Reynolds being witty and charismatic. This doesn't touch the likes of Deadpool or Free Guy, and even if you watched it, this is probably the first you've thought about it since then, because it just muddles the action to funny ratio. But it's a fun, easy Saturday night watch all the same. 51 Orphan First Kill I love the original Orphan movie. It's a huge not guilty at all pleasure. So my concern in rebooting it with the once child actor now 25 and starring in a prequel gave me concern for obvious reasons as well as the fact that the absolute wild twist at the end of the original is now out in the open. But they absolutely go for it again and do a damn good job of trying to recreate the magic. Although there's a new team behind the sequel they understand that the absolute insanity of it is what made it work and aren't afraid to get weird. The end result is that this is exactly what you want it to be. 50. Scream. When I first saw this at the start of the year, my thought process was that one day rebooting 90s IP and going super meta in the same style that the Matrix Resurrections did was going to get really old. By the end of the year, that tipping point may have already been reached as I precisely zero interest in the Scream 6 trailer that recently dropped, but this worked in spite of itself and was one of my favourite in-cinema experiences of 2022, as dozens of sleeper Scream fanatics were activated at the same time in the theatre altogether. 49. Here Before An engrossing Northern Irish mystery horror with a cute, beautifully concealed twist in the end that takes it a bit from Prestige TV to Coronation Street, but still, at 83 minutes long, is a very worthwhile watch. 48. Amulet This is my kind of horror movie. Atmospheric, full of symbolism, and super weird. The kind of movie that you just have to go with in the hope that it'll make sense in the end. It does, although once it, do once it does, the metaphor gets a bit heavy-handed and undermines some of the build-up, but if you're a horror fan looking for something weird, Amulet is worth your time. 47. Barbarian. It's tough to rate this, but I really did enjoy it and found myself wanting to make time to give it another watch. It tries to be four movies in less than two hours though, and any one of those four movies seems amazing, and as a result the cast really buy in fully as a result, which helps this project. But then they have the unenviable task of pulling those four movies together with some kind of social commentary that doesn't really work for me. So you end up with a movie that I can't fully say worked, but I also can't say that I didn't find really interesting and fun. 46. Prey this reimagined and repurposed Predator sequel is absolutely essential for fans of the original and holds its own by both modernising sufficiently but also changing the variables enough to avoid side-by-side -side comparisons. 
Although I wasn't big against the violence against dogs, my only other nitpick is that the action sequences are so delicious that it should have definitely been a cinema release and was slightly wasted as a Disney Plus exclusive. 45. The Menu This movie is great if you can deal with the idea that Voldemort has a nose. Ray Fiennes cooks then chews the scenery in this takedown of how Karens, elitist snobs and reviewers spoil fine art. It's good crack and constantly engaging, but nothing remarkable or that you're likely to keep going back to. 44. Triangle of Sadness this is not a million miles away from the themes of the menu and is a very similar movie. It's a wild and sometimes hilarious satire about the super rich from Ruben Ostland that doesn't really offer any new or revelatory takes, but I'd be lying if I said that the actor's commitment to the bit to play this straight doesn't make it a consistently entertaining fun watch all throughout. This got an 8 minute standing ovation at Cannes and maybe that was just because it's so gratuitously long that the audience just needed to get in their feet, but it's still a decent watch if you're looking for something fun and different. 43, Jackass Forever. It's nigh on impossible to review a Jackass movie. The only way you can discuss it with others is to find people who've already seen it and say stuff like, the granddad in the furniture shop, or the quiet game, or Francis and Gary punched them in the balls. I've watched this badly hung over though in the cinema and just let go of all inhibitions for a couple of hours and snort laugh the stuff that I tell myself that I'm too mature to enjoy now, but really I'm not. 42, Hive. Based on a true story, a woman tries to start a business to support widow women of missing men in post-war Kosovo, a society that has no interest in her succeeding. Succeeds where the likes of Lingui failed in simply effectively showing you the cultural challenges at play to deliver a deftly directed, powerful and superbly acted experience. 41. Great Freedom this is an excellent snapshot of the horrific cruelty enacted upon gay people in post-war Germany told largely from within a prison. Without being exploitative, it tells its own story in its own time with a great thinker of a payoff. Well worth your time if the description sounds appealing. 40. Prayers for the Stolen Three young girls try to navigate growing up around violence and a concentrated kidnapping from the cartel. Tatiana Wazo's drama is both incredibly intense and bleak, while at other times disarmingly uplifting about enduring throughout struggle. 39. Fire of Love a gorgeous National Geographic documentary on the world's most famous volcanologist couple. It manages to straddle both sides of the story in unflinchingly warning you that volcanoes are fucking dangerous, all in the style of a love story as you see why this couple became intoxicated by both the beasts and each other. 38. Kimmy Steven Soderbergh's tech thriller thinks, what if Joaquin Phoenix's her got COVID? And, you know what? It actually worked! The 90 minute runtime absolutely flies by as the movie does little with a lot and is one of the few projects I've seen that experimented with COVID that manages to capture isolation well and use it as a benefit. A really, really good movie that could have been a truly great one if it had just a bit more bite. 37. The Souvenir Part 2 Despite being ambivalent towards the original, I really liked Joanna Hogg's follow-up which decided not to be a direct sequel and instead changed tone completely while reckoning with the events from Part 1. As a result, it actually works as a standalone and you don't even necessarily need to have seen the first to appreciate it, although obviously it helps a lot. 36. Bullet Train a star-studded action caper set aboard a Tokyo train by someone who's clearly a fan of Quentin Tarantino. It's a step up with the grim, glossy, but forgettable Netflix trash that I've spoken about already, like Greyman, in that it's bold, charismatic, unafraid to challenge and just an overall fun time. But you sense that there was another level here that it just didn't reach because it was too focused on trying to emulate other movies instead of becoming its own classic, a line that, ironically, Tarantino is the master of towing. 35. Emergency 
Two black students come home to find a white girl drunk and passed out on their floor. Afraid to call the cops, things escalate. This is a sneaky hidden gem. A really simple watch that's both interesting and not afraid to use levity to keep you constantly engaged and entertained, despite the sometimes heavy themes involved. 34. The Banshees of Inisherin. Martin McDonough's latest that sees Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell's fallout is about everything and nothing at the same time. It's weird, random and twee. It's confirmed that I hate Barry Keown, but on the bright side it's also often hilarious and consistently compelling throughout. If it starts sweeping awards, it'll begin to feel patronising, like giving Ireland an award for having the best fans at a football tournament, when really we've only done alright, but it's definitely worth watching particularly over the Christmas break. 33. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent in what has otherwise been a pretty down year for comedy, Nicolas Cage plays a ridiculous version of himself in a comedy that's as weird and as wild as he wanted to be, and for me, one of the year's funniest movies. Self-aware Cage absolutely rules, and him having to crack with Pedro Pascal is the meta-action romp that none of us knew that we needed to see. 32. Red Rocket An adult film star attempts to get his life back together, or does he? Do you know the kind of movies that you wish were a TV show so you could just hang out with the characters weekly? That's exactly where this sits. It's not like Simon Rex's deadbeat Mikey has an epic story to tell worthy of the big screen, but him and his surrounding cast are hilarious enough and have the chemistry that you want to see them mess their lives up and put their all, it all back together again weekly. Hilarious, insane, excellently acted and edited with a joke you may not even notice every single minute. 31. Marina a teenage girl schemes to replace her abusive father with his friend who's come to visit. This is grim, with the contrast and tone between the plot itself and the absolutely idyllic setting growing starker with each minute. But it's undeniably compelling and a story that leaves an emotional mark. 30. Elvis a biopic that doesn't focus too heavily on the, you know, whole biopic thing. Baz Luhrmann isn't so much interested in putting together a compelling logical dramatic arc, so if anything this is technically probably more of a Colonel Tom Parker biopic, but he does want us to be able to feel Elvis's aura and live his performances again in the timeless manner that Luhrmann presents them in. That all relies then on Austin Butler delivering on his performance, which he does, making this a huge success despite being nearly three hours and not having a fully fleshed out story. 29. All Quiet on the Western Front. There isn't much new that you can really add to futility of war movies, and I guess that's why, as we begin this, it's tough not to think that we don't see as many of them these days as we used to. The good thing in this instance is that Edward Berger isn't really looking to say much extra, he just wants to show us and have us experience the horrors of the Great War through the eyes of a likeable normal gang of German soldiers and what adds up to a tough, merciless, but ultimately worthwhile watch. 28. The Batman. Matt Reeves gives Batman a much needed refresher by putting the focus more on his detective skills rather than his superhero status, while also using incredible cinematography and sound mixing to create a unique, pulpy vibe to Gotham. I enjoyed being in this world so much, spending time with a Robert Pattinson proving all doubters wrong in his portrayal, that I barely stopped to notice that the plot was totally uneven and tried to fit too much in. What that results in is a great Batman vibe in a movie that in itself isn't great, but leaves enough of a positive impression of you that you sense a follow-up could give them similar success to The Dark Knight if the plot is handled with enough care. 27. Hustle Adam Sandler, Queen Latifah and a bunch of past and present NBA stars make a basketball movie for Netflix. That sounds really mediocre, right? And yet, it's somehow up there with Top Gun Maverick for a movie that has no right to be as good as it is. It leans both into the most familiar tropes we love about sports movies, while also finding ways to be original within the drama and not resting on cliches all at the same time. 
26, Thor Love and Thunder. I feel really bad for all involved in making this movie. It was released in the wake of the disappointment that was Doctor Strange when the public narrative on Markle was felt primed to shift. I think rewatches will serve public opinion on this much better than it got originally. No, it wasn't Ragnarok, but the drop-off is about as negligible as the one between the two Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Taika Waititi delivers consistent laughs, good action, interesting lore without being overly melodramatic, gorgeous aesthetics if you can excuse the occasional animation snafu, and an overall really fun movie. 25. Aisha. Letitia Wright uses the backdrop of Dublin to underscore the insipid cruelty of direct provision as refugees are graded on how horrific the life circumstances that led them there were in order to qualify for basic human rights such as the right to work or visit home. Jack O'Connor is also a revelation as a Dublin security guard who bonds with Wright and they make a movie that really shouldn't work on paper because of how understated and authentic it feels. 24. Pleasure. A perfect companion piece to She Said, because where that almost tries to convince you that the Me Too movement ended sexual abuse towards women, Pleasure's no-holds-barred look at the porn industry today, seen through the eyes of Sophia Capel, tells instead of how it continues to strong post-Me Too, now weaponizing equality and consent in order to maintain old institutions. Capel is an absolute revelation as she carries each indignity with her and as the industry slowly breaks her down. 23. The Northman. This is Game of Thrones on LSD, with elements of The Green Knight, Kill Bill, Midsummer, and Revenge of the Sith. It isn't fun or enjoyable, but it's fucking thrilling and an amazing cinema experience. The action is amazingly shot and the fight choreography is a class unto itself. 22. Mass Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton and Anne Dowd and Reed Burney absolutely knock it out of the park in this predominantly one scene theatrical story about families on both sides trying to reckon with and connect with each other in the aftermath of a school shooting. It's not an easy watch but also doesn't try to punish you either as the compassion, empathy and focus on healing while not flinching from the subject matter makes it work phenomenally. 21. Playground Maya van der Beek gives one of the most remarkable child performances I've ever seen in this excellent French movie about playground politics that tackles its subject matter with an authentic level of granular detail that will touch anyone watching. You feel like you're back in the playground and all of the uncomfortable fear that comes with that. 20. Young Plato Dead Poet Society meets school around the corner as a philosophy-toting principal tries a fresh approach with his school in this documentary. And it's great. The 2022 trend of blending Ireland's difficult past with some hope and positivity for the future is a theme you'll see explored several times towards the top of this list as it's leading to some incredible artistic output. 19. Hit the road. A hidden gem about an Iranian family going on the road together to say goodbye. Panapanahid's debut paints a wide-ranging portrait of Iran, a welcome reminder to real people behind the tyranny associated with the country that can overwhelm our view of it sometimes, in a beautifully shot, disarmingly funny, unrelentingly brutal movie at times that features the most charismatic child actor since Macaulay Culkin. 18. Nothing Compares Unfortunately, the latest trend in a of documentary where the camera serves as a mirror to reflect back on how the world chewed up and spat out a vulnerable female abuse victim artist in Sinead O'Connor. The clips and quotes have aged magnificently and in 2022 vindicate someone who the world punished for merely saying what we knew to be true but weren't ready to accept. She should have been treasured then. This should ensure that she's treasured now, but it needs you to see it and spread the word first if you haven't already to do so. 17. The worst person in the world. 
A star-making performance from Renata Rensiv turns Wackim Trier's Norwegian-language drama about a woman's life evolving through stages of a relationship into a must-see. Charming and easy viewing, all while remaining challenging at every turn. A triumph on multiple levels. 16. Nitram Caleb Landry Jones is incredible in this brilliant but harrowing Australian movie about the relationship between mental illness and gun violence. Sticks to landing and nails his point without ever having to be crass or lecherous about what's obviously a device of a new emotive relevant topic. And what makes it work is that it straddles the line between empathising with its lead character without ever letting him off the hook either. 15. The Innocence this is Norwegian Stranger Things, if Stranger Things grew up in a difficult home. A psychological thriller about a group of misfit kids who realise they have superpowers and a connection with each other that you need to make time to see. It's twisted, merciless, but edge of your seat gripping once it kicks into gear. This is a magnificent little find that you might have to work to see, but definitely makes it worth your while. 14. Licorice Pizza Paul Thomas Anderson's controversial story about a young, possibly illegal first love in the San Fernando Valley touches on some controversial themes made more so by the fact that Anderson doesn't seem to want to acknowledge them as such. If you can get away from them though, this is an incredibly acted, charming, lift-in world that puts you right into 70s LA with some genuine belly laughs to boot. 13. Nope. In much the same way we speak of Tarantino's, Scorsese's, Spielberg's and Hitchcock's, now we must add Jordan Peele to the list of directors who are effectively genres unto themselves after Peele's third feature release. I'd rank this slightly above us in that it has more substance story-wise, but doesn't match the all-encompassing feat that was Get Out. It's a visceral, often terrifying and always awe-inspiring experience that needs to be consumed in IMAX. It follows its own set of rules to make it unsettling but a brilliantly satisfying experience. 12. Happening A student finds herself pregnant and low on options and support in 1950s France. This leads to an absolutely unrelenting and unapologetic takedown of the horrific life choices living in a pro-life world forces upon people. It'll be a crime if Anna Maria Vartalemi is snubbed this award season for her astonishingly physical and emotional performance. 11. Turning Red Pixar continue to get no respect with this straight to Disney Plus release being up there with many of the studio's strongest offerings. The fact that it riled up some old lads who couldn't live in a world that alluded to Asians and women, and women having periods is a benefit, not a feature. This story of self-acceptance is essential and packs the same one-two laughs to emotional gut punches as the likes of classics like Inside Out or Up. 10. Belfast Kenneth Branagh somehow makes me feel nostalgic for a time and place that I've never been in. Walking in, I braced myself for a difficult watch in this movie set during the Troubles, and instead was met with an absolute charmer that left me laughing as much as crying, but wasn't afraid to go left and hit hard where necessary either. This deserved its Best Picture nomination. 9. Top Gun Maverick Takes your breath away. A movie that had no right being as good as it was. It's the Paddington 2 of 80s throwback sequels. It somehow surpasses the original in every single way while at the same time remaining completely faithful to it. Seriously fun and a massive achievement from all involved. 8. Titan as a huge fan of movies that leave everyone walking out of the cinema in shared trauma, wondering what the fuck they had just watched, yet substantial enough to stick with you for weeks or months afterwards. Never mind one that leaves you wondering, Un under what circumstances may I want to have sex with a car? Agatha Roussel gives absolutely everything to the point that you just want to give the actress, and not the character I must clarify who is terrifying, a hug in Julia de Carnot's excellent follow-up to Raw. 7. A Hero 
What makes someone a hero? That's all Asghar Farhadi asks in this Iranian web that begins with such a simple premise then unspooled in every direction possible. Go out of your way to see this gem that's hidden away on Amazon Prime Video. If you enjoy Moral Dilemmas, this is definitely, definitely for you. 6. After Sun Charlotte Wells is likely to clean up in awards season as she nails every aspect of a 90s budget family holiday and the wide array of emotions that seemingly meaningless interactions or activities during it inspire. The setting creates a false sense of familiarity and safety to take some absolutely brutal real left turns. Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio make epitomising the unspoken complications of father-daughter relationships look absolutely effortless in a movie that constantly, sometimes devastatingly, contrasts the excitement of growing up with the crushing reality of growing up. 5. Decision to Leave Park Chan-wook's latest about a detective who becomes obsessed with a murder suspect is part murder mystery, part rom-com and all awesome. It's funny, dark, brilliantly acted and filmed with love and a spark. The first half in particular is edge of your seat stuff, constantly leaving you off balance, guessing and always entertained and had the second half been able to keep up that pace, this may have ended up on the top of this list. But as it stands, it's still absolutely worth your time and one of my most fun cinema experiences of the year. 4. Rise Roar Revolt Imagine an Indian cross between Rambo and The Departed except with elaborate musical numbers. Yep, that's right, it's amazing. I wouldn't call this a must-see movie because describing how you relate to this movie as just seeing is selling it short. This is a must-experience movie. One of the most creative, fun movies of the year that even at three hours absolutely flies by. 3. On Colleen Kuhn this is currently getting buzz for being shortlisted for Best International Feature at the Academy Awards. Truth be told though, that's selling it short. This should be getting Best Picture buzz because it's across every metric one of the best films of the year unquestionably. The plot sees a neglected girl plays by, played by Catherine Clinch giving a performance beyond her years visit family for the summer. It's subtle, deft, yet so amazing in recreating moments that will resonate deeply with Irish people of a certain age and I pray that it gets the Best Picture nomination it deserves. 2. You Are Not My Mother this horror from Kate Dolan may not be for everyone, but as soon as I watched it, it instantly became one of my favourite horror movies ever. The best horror from my taste is one that takes elements of real life and stretches them so you feel them in a way that you just couldn't with any other genre. It doesn't need to be supernatural or have super serial killers. There's plenty of horror that the real world has to offer to work with. For me, and I'm sure anyone who grew up like the central character in a family trying to navigate one member's severe mental illness, this was both incredibly triggering but also validating. It's so precise that certain scenes, moments or even facial expressions instantly broke me and brought up memories that had been repressed for years. And that in itself isn't an achievement. You don't get points for just re-traumatising your audience members. But then to bring it all together in a way that both satisfies people just there for the horror and soothes those it has triggered is what makes it an absolute masterpiece from Dolan and one that all horror fans need to go out of their way to see immediately. It's on Netflix as we speak. But in at number one... It's you messing with my head. Shh. What do I do? She means head. Don't worry. Calm down, please. Calm down. Relax your body in the other universe, please. Going to autopilot. You can't then deduct it if it's an off. Good. Good. They don't know you and I are in this universe yet. So hopefully I'll have some time to explain. I'm not your husband, and he's not the one you know. 
I'm another version of all from another life path, another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Everything, everywhere, all at once. One of my favourite cinema experiences is being left so thoroughly jammed to your seat after a movie comes along and blows you away succinctly that all you can think of as the credits roll is... Did I just witness one of my favourite movies of all time? And that's how everything, everywhere, all at once left me and why, for me, it's the best movie of 2022. This is if Tarantino directed a cross between The Matrix and Deadpool, except that it's his fever dream about multiverses with the ability to fully manipulate your emotions at will. It's absolutely insane, but in the best possible way. Its uses of multiverses pretty much instantly made all of the MCU Phase 4 redundant by showing that they didn't have a clue what to do by comparison. And yet, behind all the mayhem, humour, imagination and chaos, this is a tender, profound movie about broken connections with families driven by changing priorities and the struggle in growing up while trying not to grow apart. If you treat yourself to one movie from this list in January, make it this one if you haven't seen it already. Everyone needs to see this, preferably everywhere, if possible, all at once. And with that guys, I sign off saying, of all the places I could be, I just want to be here, with you. And I will be. Every week we're going to start on Wednesdays and see how we go from there. Beginning on Wednesday the 18th of January with our first show proper as we break down the first episode of the show. That, like, I think you can get it from the few times that I've mentioned it already. I'm a little bit excited about, okay? And uh, do you know what more than anything? It's something, it's a, it's a show and a story and an experience and characters that I just can't wait to share with other people. And that's the main thing because I've been saying it for years and video games are just so you either you either love video games or you don't or you love certain video games or you don't but everyone loves great tv so that's why i think that this story has everything that can offer and i'm talking of course about hbo's the last of us so guys i can't wait to discuss it and i can't wait for your thoughts so please send them in on socials in the meantime so i can kind of we can start that discussion and keep it going throughout the year also on my agenda i hope to have watched netflix's new movie kaleidoscope tom hanks a man called otto as well as potentially amazing or awful horror movie megan so once again join us at page 180 pod on twitter instagram or tiktok send me brief reviews of any of the upcoming movies or your initial last of us thoughts on instagram ideally via a quick voice note but i'll take written as well uh, click subscribe on spotify tell tell a friend spread the word if you're so inclined everything helps when we're starting out a new project like this before we wrap up special thanks to simon b lee for the artwork of the show you can find him at b lee s design on socials as well as tristan carroll from cell games who created the team song which old school love Plus network listeners may recognise as being repurposed from a previous project. I just love it so much that I had to use it again. That's all, folks. Until next time, I'm Jer Leggett, and this has been the pilot episode of Page 180. What is that? I got bored one day, and I put everything on a bagel. Everything. All my hopes and dreams, my old report cards... Every breed of dog, every last personal ad on Craigslist. Sesame, poppy seed, salt. And it collapsed in on itself. Because <laughs> you see, when you really put everything on a bagel, it becomes this. Come on. Come on, Evelyn. The truth. What? the truth nothing matters
You don't believe that? Feels nice, doesn't it? If nothing matters, then all the pain and guilt you feel for making nothing of your life goes away. Sucked into a bagel.